book of Philippians. In a moment, we're going to work our way through um, a bit of chapter 2 this morning together. Philippians chapter 2. And um, uh, uh, see what um, we can learn about this king that we've been singing about. One of the things I, I do enjoy doing is singing. I try not to do it too often in public. Uh, I was whistling and singing this morning and somebody came up to me and they said, did you hear what so-and-so said? They said, don't quit your day job. Um, and I said, well, maybe they should listen to me preach first and then they might think differently. Um, but I love to sing. I was at the hospital on this weekend and I can't remember if it was Friday or Saturday. And one of the places I like to sing is in the stairway um, of the hospital because it, the, the sound is its amazing. And I, I kind of hope that there's nobody that's following me up or down the stairs uh, because I just, it just sounds, the, the walls make me sound good. Um, so I love to sing. And I think singing is part of who we are as Christians. Um, it's part of actually the Christian culture more so than a lot of other religions. It's very hard to sing about all becoming one in the great nirvana. Um, you know, it's hard to sing about... Um, concepts that are hard to divide, this, de, 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 define, and, and um, yet in the Christian faith we have incredible things that we sing about. And there's a great deal of theology that's worked into our songs. Um, you just listen to some of the songs that we sang today, and you think of the words of the songs that we sang today, and they articulate some amazing truths about our God. They articulate amazing truths about our King, and that's one of the things that we strive to do here in all of our services is to um, consider songs that are first and foremost theologically correct. It's very easy to pick songs that we all love to sing. They've got real catchy little tunes and they make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside, but they really don't tell us much or they don't tell us things that are true. And so one of the most important things about any song is not how does it make you feel and how easy it is to tap your foot to it, But what is it saying? And theology does matter. Our text today is in the form of a hymn. And uh, it's not necessarily easy to detect, but almost every commentator that you would read on this particular passage, uh, I only found one that thought maybe it, it wasn't, but all of the others suggested that this is a hymn. It's the hymn of hymns, as some would put it. It's got some of the richest theology in the revelation of Jesus Christ of any portion of Scripture that we will find. We don't know where it came from. We don't even know who composed it. Um, uh, But we find it recorded in Scripture for our benefit and for our good. It really turns much of our thinking upside down. It causes us to look at life from a completely different perspective And frankly, as I consider even speaking about it, I still wrestle with the theology and with the illustration and with the example of Christ. It just doesn't come naturally to me. Verse 5, and we'll uh, we'll come to it in a second. Verse 5 could either introduce the whole hymn or it may begin the hymn. We're not really sure. But it definitely gives us the reason why Paul inserted this hymn where he did. Verse 5 simply says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's a transitional verse. It's a verse that looks back, particularly to verses 2 to 4. 
In verses 2 to 4 of this particular chapter, Paul is now addressing this particular church in Philippi who are having trouble getting along. They're having trouble getting along because they're full of selfishness and they're full of empty conceit. They're only concerned about themselves and, and their own interests. And so this hymn looks back to that as an illustration of how they can find unity again and of how they can get on the same page together. This verse, though, also looks ahead to verse 6 and 11, or 6 to 11, and shows us, demonstrates to us, the attitude and the actions that we are to demonstrate as those who are increasingly being made into the image of God. It's why at the end, frankly, it says that this was all done to the glory of the Father. We might think, well, it should be to the glory of Christ because Christ is the one that has made this great movement from glory to humility back to glory. And so we should expect it to end to the glory of Christ. But it ends, no, to the glory of the Father. And I'll say this a few times because I think this is at the heart of it. It's because it is at the very nature of the Father, and therefore we glorify, it glorifies the Father. This action that we see in Christ reflects the Father's heart perfectly, and therefore the Father is glorified. If you have your Bibles open, you can follow along with me as I read from the ESV, um, verses uh, 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This hymn is easily divided into three stanzas, three sections, each describing in a way that we can at least begin to understand portions of our Lord's existence. It begins by pointing us to his pre-incarnate existence. And we're going to be talking a lot about the incarnation in the next couple of days. The incarnation is, we refer to that as God taking on human flesh and coming to live amongst us. So these first verse and a half describes how Jesus existed before he came to earth. And then the next verse and a half describes Jesus' earthly existence. And then the last Two verses describe how Jesus is now once again living in heaven. And so it goes through those three phases of Christ's life. And one person has said, we are led in one great sweep from the highest of heights to the deepest of depths, from the light of God to the darkness of death. And I would add, and back once again to the height of glory. This journey of this kingship begins with a simple decision. Well, not really a simple decision, a very difficult decision and a profound decision, but it begins with a decision. And you find that in verse six. Verse six tells us that he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, 
as something to be seized upon, as something to be hung on to. And this is a turning point, which is absolutely critical for us to understand the nature of God and for us to see how it is that we can finally become children of God and enter into his family. It was that decision that begins this incredible journey of Christ. It helps that we just get a, a glimpse of some of the, um, the, the, the words that this text used because some of them are very difficult. Many of them are still debated. Often the words that are used in these few verses are not used anywhere else in the Bible. And so it, it, it matters that we just try and understand what the text says. And the first thing that we uh, maybe need to know before we get to the, 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 the words is that while this is theology, it's also meant to illustrate something for us. It is theology because it tells us deep things about God and about Christ that is so hard for us to wrap our heads around. But at the same time, it is meant to illustrate to us the way that we are to think and the way that we are to live. So as we wrestle with these, don't get sort of confused and lost in the theology and the difficulty. Keep telling yourself, okay, but I need to be, be like Christ. I need to think like Christ. I need to do what Christ was or did. And so the first word that we come across or the first phrase is that he was in the form of God. It doesn't mean that, that there was a shape or there was a, a structure to God. It, it, the NIV says that he was in the very nature of God. He shared the, the morphe of God. It's a description of one who possesses inwardly and displays outwardly the very nature of God. In other words, it's a way that Paul is saying that Jesus was God. He was in the very form of God. That Christ was God. This is this statement about Christ's pre-existence. In all eternity past... Christ shared the very nature of God. It was in the likeness of God. He was in the image of God. He was the splendor of God because he was God. Indeed, everything that makes God God was in Jesus. And we teach that and we believe that, that God is one essence and yet he exists in three persons. And so Paul begins by saying something profound that Jesus Christ is God. Verse 7, though, tells us something about Jesus and the decision that he made. It says, but he emptied himself. Literally, himself, he emptied. The NIV puts it this way, he made himself nothing. The King James Version says, but he made himself of no reputation. The New Living Translation says he gave up his divine privileges. Some of those border on interpretation, not translation. This phrase is a much debated term. He emptied. We don't struggle necessarily with what it means to empty. But what we try and figure out is what did Jesus empty himself of and why? Some would say that he emptied himself of his divine nature. Some would say that he set aside his authority to call the shots, the prerogative of being God. However, the wording in the text, if you look at it, does not say he emptied himself of anything. It just says he emptied himself. Listen carefully, because the text helps us understand what it means for Christ to empty himself. He emptied himself taking. 
It sounds like a contradiction, but it's an emptying by addition, not by subtraction. He emptied himself by taking upon what we're going to look at, a form of a servant. What does this say about Christ? Well, it sort of gives us an illustration. When Christ came into this world, as we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, he didn't arrive in the fashion of one who we would call a king or one who was God. Christ came into this world in humility, in a humble fashion. He was born in a, in a, in a lowly way, in a, in a manger or a stable, in obscurity. This is why the angels had to say to the shepherds, this will be a sign to you. You will find this child wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And right away our heads just start, what a strange sight. A child in a manger. What kind of child is this? His sign is not a chariot parked outside the stable. It's not an entourage waiting in the wings. It's a child in a manger. So that's what it means to be a king. Verse 7 tells us even another thing about this, this one who was in the very form of God, who emptied himself. It says, he took on the form of a slave. There's the same word again, the form. The morphe, we saw the same word in verse 6. And he there who was inwardly and outwardly in nature God chose to live inwardly and outwardly in nature as a servant. He displayed all the characteristics, all the attributes of a slave. Some translations will translate the word servant, others slave. There are two Greek words used for servant. One implies a person who is hired to perform a task. The other is sold as an instrument for the use of the buyer. The first has the right to come and go as they will. The second serves at the will of their master. It's the second term that is used in our text here. It means slave. It's doulos. A doulos has absolutely no rights. They serve their master in whatever way he or she chooses. And so we read here that Jesus took on, inwardly and outwardly, the life of a slave. He became as much an earthly servant as he was a heavenly sovereign. But again, the question is why? Why would the one who was equal with God, inwardly and outwardly, conform himself to a slave, inwardly and outwardly? Another term is the term likeness. The likeness of a human being. Again, these words are chosen by the Holy Spirit carefully and specifically. Each one is specific. He was being, he was being made in human likeness. Well, what does that say? This word is related to the word image, but the emphasis is on similarity. And so it allows for difference between original, the original and the copy. The term allows us to see one who was by nature God becoming a human being, but not merely a human being or not only a human being. See, Paul leaves room for ambiguity here. In becoming a servant, Jesus did not cease to be God. Let that explode your mind. In coming a servant... He did not cease to be God. At the same time, he held both qualities of being God and a servant. 
As he became a servant, he did not cease to be God. Ralph Martin wrote, he is truly man, but he is not merely man. He is a man, but he is still divine. He was all man and yet all God. We can read that into the text because of the word likeness. Verse 8 tells us that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. As a human being, Jesus chose to live the life of a slave. And it says that even to the point of death on a cross. His obedience went as far as the ultimate humiliation of that day. Crucifixion was reserved only for slaves, never for Roman citizens. Only the worst of criminals were ever tortured by death on a cross. There was no more degrading way to die than on a cross. Here we realize that we have hit rock bottom. We have gone from the heights of glory, one who was very God, God himself, to one who submitted himself and humbled himself to the point of being a servant, even to death on a cross. So that's what it means to be a king. There's one more term that we need to understand, and it's the word name. In verse 11, he was given the name which is above every name. What name is that? Well, it's the name Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, the sovereign God was always referred to as Lord or Yahweh. But it was a title so sacred that it was never spoken. And so when Hebrew was read, they substituted Adonai for Yahweh. We translate it as the word Lord also. And when you bring it into the Greek text, it becomes kurios. We translate it the same way again, Lord. And so we think, what a title for one who was a traveling preacher from a little despised town of Nazareth. It carries the same reverent respect, Lord, carries the same reverent respect that the title Yahweh does. There should almost be a difficulty that we should have saying, Lord, if we carry over the Hebrew respect for the word Yahweh. And at the, every, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Kyrios, Lord, or Yahweh of the Old Testament, to the glory of the Father. And now we are back in heaven. So why a servant is a servant giving such a title? Master, Lord. Why does it bring glory to the Father? Again, understanding all of these terms and understanding what Christ did and how he set aside his the prerogatives of glory and took on the form of a servant, it helps us understand the very nature of God. Christ is illustrating to us what God is like because he is God. Christ would say to the disciples in John, he would say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so when we see Christ and the attitude of Christ in this great humiliation, what we are seeing is our Father. The way he thinks, the way he lives, the way he acts. And so it all brings glory to God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Loved ones, we owe our redemption to that decision. 
we owe our salvation to the fact that Christ was able to humble himself and become obedient even to death on a cross. Understand that what is being decided hinges upon this word that's translated something to be grasped. This has been a notorious problem for translators. One, because it's very rare, and so it's hard to see how it's used in other contexts. The King James Version uses the term robbery. But again, this word is not found anywhere else in the New Testament, and it's very scarce in Greek literature. The latest translations are translating it like something to be exploited. It has been shown that it means something to seize upon, in the sense of take advantage of. So Christ did not take advantage of his deity. Christ did not use his deity as a way to get what he wanted. I think we're we're getting at it closer now. That Christ did not use his position for selfish gain. Jesus did not see equality with God as something to be taken advantage of. Something to be exploited. But emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. And so again, we come back and we wrestle with some of these texts and to try and understand what they mean for us. He made himself nothing. Loved ones, that can't mean that Christ became nothing. It can't mean that in becoming man, he ceased to be God because in a few weeks, we're going to start singing carols that say Emmanuel, Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. And I just read from 1 Corinthians that says, in Christ, he is the, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So it can't mean that he ceased to become God. If it doesn't mean he literally made himself nothing, and if it doesn't mean he ceased to become God, then what does it mean? How do we understand he emptied himself? Well, it, we understand it by, by when he made himself nothing, he did it by taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself not of something, but by taking the form of a servant. The question is not what did he, not what did he empty himself of, but rather into what did he empty himself? He emptied himself into the very form of a slave. It was what the Lord Jesus took on himself that humbled him, not what he set aside. In becoming a slave, he became nothing. Gordon Fee points out in his commentary that we don't like the sound of that. We don't like the sound of nothing. We don't like the thought that we need to become nothing. We don't like the thought that we have to give up all the privileges and all the, the, the benefits of who we are, what we do, where we live, um, where we work. We don't like the thought of having to set them aside and become nothing for the benefit of others. And yet that is what Jesus did. So that's what it means to be a king. Christ, who was a somebody, became a nobody. And yet in doing that, he was still God. But by taking himself on humanity, he became nobody. And yet again, he's still God. He was somebody who has become a nobody in order to serve others. He doesn't cease to be who he is. But he becomes something else. 
He pours himself into humanity without giving up his deity. The appearance of a man. There's something different about Jesus, is there not, loved ones? We think about Jesus, we read about Jesus, we talk about Jesus, and we recognize that he was like us with flesh and blood, and he walked a few thousand years ago in, in a place called Israel by the shores of Galilee and down the road to, to Jericho and back up to Jerusalem. We recognize that, but, but intuitively when we read about him in the scriptures, we say, but no, there's more to it. And, and the people recognize that when they talk, they said, he doesn't talk like the rest of our teachers. There's an authority about him. There's something about him that's not like the rest of us. And after all, he can pray to a little girl that's died and she comes back to life. And he can touch deaf ears and they start to hear. He can touch blind eyes and they can see again. He can take somebody who is full of a demon and he can release them and give them freedom. There's something different about this man. And so in emptying himself and becoming a slave, He didn't cease to be God. So how does this then apply to us as we look ahead to this coming week? I think it matters for a number of reasons. And it matters because we are told by Paul to have the same attitude as Christ. And that is so hard. Because we all like our power. We all like our position. We all like our titles. We all like our viewpoint. We all like our ideas. And we hate the thought of giving in or giving up so that somebody else can succeed and do better. So it impacts us in the community. The opposite of serving is to cling to our rights, our lives, and our desires for fulfillment. Jesus warned that if we save ourselves, if we save our lives, we would lose them. He says, that's not what you were created for. Rather, he says, when you lose your life, when you let go your demands and you serve others, it's then that you find life. And many of you know that here. If only in little tastes. Because you know that when you serve yourself and when you live for yourself, there's a hollowness, there's an emptiness, there's something that's missing. And, and you might have this and you might have that, but you're not happy. But you know that when you give up some of your stuff or some of your privileges and serve others or help others, that there's a life that comes. There's a joy that comes. There's something that tweaks inside of you because that's how God made you and I to function. And so when we go out into the community, and this is what I pray for us as a church, that we would be a serving church. If we never lose sight of this real insight. And I think sometimes it's because we do not look like Christ that people are not drawn to Christ. They don't see in us a humility. They don't see in us this willingness to to set aside our stuff so we can help them with their stuff. May God help us to do that even a little bit more. How could we not be drawn to one like God who set that all aside and took on a form of servant so that he could help us? 
There's something appealing about that. May we be like that in the community this week. I think secondly, it applies to us in our attitude to our church family. See, because in, in, in the context, Paul is dealing with trouble in the church. He's dealing with people who just can't get along. They can't figure out how to live together, how to work together. And often trouble comes because rather than being a nobody, we want to be a somebody. One who is concerned about, uh, who is concerned about others, um, uh, knowing who they are, what they have done, what they think, um, it's hard for them uh, to think, I don't matter. They want to think, no, I do matter. I'm a somebody. My ideas, my, my, my way of doing things, my view. When Augustine was asked, what are the central principles of Christianity? He replied, number one, humility. Number two, humility. Number three, humility. See, at its heart, Paul is calling us as a people to humility. This is amazing theology, but at its heart, it's an illustration of how we ought to think like our Lord and Savior thinks. Remember, this is an illustration. It's an illustration of how we are to get along with others. And so we ought to have this Christmas attitude. Jesus did not approach the incarnation asking, well, what do I get out of this? What's in it for me? If I do this, what do I get? When he thought about the manger, oh, it doesn't matter. When he thought about being an outcast and a stranger, oh, it doesn't matter. When he thought about dying on a cross, it doesn't matter. I wonder, though, if this Christmas attitude is not largely lost on us. And you see it again as we see the commercials and the advertisements. It's all about me, 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 stuff for me. The bigger, the better, the brighter, the louder. Me. No. It's about others. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was, and I put this in there, a somebody, yet for your sake he became a nobody, so that we who were nobodies, by his poverty, might become somebodies. Second Corinthians 8, 9 is... A summary of Second Philippians 2, 5 to 11. We cannot forget that Paul's whole point in reminding us of this song is that we have the attitude of Christ. Have the same attitude among yourselves that was in Christ. And then finally, our attitude towards Christ himself. It's a principle is vital not only to our attitudes to others, but towards Christ because until we sort of accept this reality and this, this, this way of living in this Christ-likeness, we will never accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. We looked at this a few weeks ago. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. These things that he's referring to are the things of salvation, the story about how to know God. It's tied into this story about Christ and we are so proud and sometimes we look at the story of Christ and we think to ourselves well that's kind of dumb and our pride gets in the way and sometimes we think well okay I don't mind where he started and I don't mind where he ended up but I hate that middle part why do we have to have the middle part why do we have to have humility why do we have to have death 
And our egos get in the way and our thinking gets in the way and our somebody factor gets in the way and we think, no, I've got to be a somebody. I matter. It's, it's about me. And this, this Christian stuff and this humbling stuff and this Christ stuff, it's, it's good for, uh, you know, old ladies and old men who are close to death and they're just gathering together and they need some help. It's good for those who have broken dreams and are grasping for hope and help. It's okay for somebody who have might have gotten lost on the highway of life and they're desperate for something to guide them. But not, I don't need this. Not for somebody like myself. I'm trained. I'm smart. I know what life is all about. I don't need this stuff. And then you add to that the reputation factor. You know, we've got the somebody factor, and then we've got the reputation factor, and we think, no, you're asking me that I have to bow before a baby in a manger? You're telling me that I have to give up my status and my position and who I am in order to follow Christ? And our sense of pride gets in the way of following Christ. If we are to find God, if you are to find God, you need to set aside your pride. You need to set aside your high view of yourself. And you need to consider, at least for a moment, maybe God knows you better than you know yourself. C.S. Lewis, some of you know C.S. Lewis. He was a brilliant mind. For a while, he was an atheist, but over the course of a period of time, God continued to bring him to the point of humbling himself before Christ. 1929, in Trinity College at Cambridge, he gave in. And literally, I think the way he writes it, it was a giving in. For he writes, I admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. And then he adds this. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. At least he recognized how hard it was to come to the point where he emptied himself of all he thought about himself and submitted himself to Christ. He recognized the difficulty in that, but nonetheless, he took the step. If you follow the life of C.S. Lewis, you wonder how God, or you, you are awed at how God transformed that proud, intellectual man into a man used by God in his gifts to serve others. How about you today? Are you willing to humble yourself and to submit to Christ? Are you willing to come before him and say, you know what, I need to give up my somebody thinking. I need to set aside my desire for a reputation. I want to come before Christ. I want to understand why he did that. I want to understand how his death applies to me. What a song this passage sings. My prayer is that as we go into this week, our lives will sing this illustration. Loved ones, I know how hard it is to set aside our position, to set aside the privileges of who we are, what we do, where we do it, who we do it with. I know how hard it is to humble ourselves. But we need to remember Peter. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and at the right time, he will exalt you. Let this mind be in you, 
that was in Christ Jesus also. Amen.